Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission Network. This week, we're kicking off our podcast with the main session talks from Revive 2018, Co-Mission's annual Bible Festival. Today, Richard Perkins, Director of Church Planting at Co-Mission, preaches from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. Finding myself hopelessly ill-informed and uh, facing an imminent deadline, I did what I repeatedly tell my children not to do. I consulted Wikipedia. But according to that bastion of truth, this is London. Our population is approximately 9 million people, depending where you stop. If we were a country, we'd be the 90th uh, biggest in the world. That's out of 233 countries, just behind Sweden, just ahead of Azerbaijan. We make up 13% of the UK population. 3 million, or 36% of us, were born overseas. Of the children born, only three years ago, in 2015, 69% of them had at least one foreign parent. In January 2005, a survey of London's ethnic and religious diversity claimed that there were more than 300 languages spoken in London. According to the 2011 census, the top 10 nationalities represented in our city are the British at the top, the Indians, the Polish, the Irish, the Nigerians, the Pakistanis, the Bangladeshis, the Jamaicans, the Sri Lankans, and the French. Isn't that brilliant? Yes, get in. What are we, the sixth? I think we're the sixth largest French city in the world. God has brought the nations to our doorstep at this particular time. It's extraordinary and it's brilliant. 45% of us in London are white British, 21% of us are Asian, 16% of us are black. Across London, Black and Asian children outnumber white British children by about six to four in state schools. Isn't that wonderful? This is London. This is home. And this is our mission field. But it's not commission, is it? And it's probably not our churches either. Look around this tent. The truth is, we are not yet where we want to be, are we? But we're not done yet. We're just starting out. And let's not beat ourselves up too much. I mean, back when we, were be- when we began, um, I think it was 40 people in SW19. Um, suburban Wim- Wimbledon, not known for its cultural diversity. We're not where we want to be, but we're not where we were. But wouldn't you love to come back here in years to come and be sat next to someone who's got a different skin colour to you and who comes from a different culture? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be a fabulous expression of what God is doing through the gospel in gathering men, women and children underneath the gracious rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be an expression, a foretaste of where God is taking his world. We know that the future is multinational, multiracial, multicultural. Wouldn't it be brilliant if just here we had a glimpse of what it's going to be like to be in that new creation? Wouldn't that be amazing? 
Our city is there already. It's just they don't know God. And that is the great spiritual travesty of our time. 90%, if we're being generous, of the people around where we live don't know God. They don't know what we know. They have no idea what it is to have your sins forgiven, that burden of guilt taken away by the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no idea what it is to have the spirit living within us, beginning to put to death our sins and pursuing the kind of godliness we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. They just don't know that, but we do. And we'd love to be a part of fixing that, wouldn't we? Do I get a cross-cultural amen to that? Get in. But I think our issue this morning is not so much whether we want that. We do, don't we? Our issue is how do we do it? Now, I can't pretend to solve all of those problems in the time that we've got together. But Paul does spell out some wonderful, governing, abiding principles for us here in this wonderful little passage. I think we'll begin to address it. I guess there's going to be conversations that flow out in our individual lives, our congregational lives, and as an organisation, where we begin to address these issues more and more and work out what it looks like in practice. But here you go. We'll look at these three. But before we get to those, let me just say, it is obviously this passage, autobiographical. It's part of a section in the letter that goes from chapter 8 through to chapter 10, in which Paul is explaining to the Corinthian church why he did what he did when he was with them. Given the uniqueness, therefore, of his own situation and Paul's uniqueness as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, I guess it does beg the question whether we're meant to do anything more than simply sit back and admire his example of cross-cultural ministry and say, wasn't he brilliant? And admire him. It is unquestionably autobiographical, but I'm persuaded it's more than just being descriptive. I think there is a prescriptive element here. There's something we're meant to do in response, not simply admire Paul, but I think he sets before us something to aspire to. He sets before us what we might achieve if we begin to share the lifestyle that he begins to spell out here. Now, the reason I say that is because of what he says at the end of the section. It goes through to the end of chapter 10. And here in verse 31 of chapter 10, this is what Paul writes, concluding the section. He says, so, whether you eat or drink or or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble. Literally, don't cause offence to people, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God even as I try to please everyone in every way, because I'm not seeking my own good. I'm seeking the good of many, so that they may be saved. And here you go. Follow my example, he writes, as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul encourages his readers to follow his example precisely because his example is based on the example of the Lord Jesus who models the Christian life for us. And so in both passages, both the one at the end and the one we concern ourselves with now, his concern is the same, and it's this, the salvation of many. How do we behave and what do we do to pursue the salvation of many? And what we're about to consider is cross-shaped, a, a cross-shaped approach to the Christian life in this area of cross-cultural ministry. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did. And it is a lifestyle that we are invited this very morning to take up 
and make our own. So look, here's the question again. How are we, as individuals, churches, and as a network, how are we going to connect with the diversity of the people in our city in such a way that the people of our city, irrespective of where they've come from, hear the gospel, understand the gospel, question the gospel, can wrestle with the gospel, and in the end we pray, accept and believe and live in the light of the gospel. What's the plan? How are we going to do that? This chapter contains one hugely significant principle from the Apostle Paul's evangelistic ministry. And it is the principle, here you go, here's the big idea of cultural flexibility. And so this is the image I want you to have in mind, particularly throughout this talk and going forward. Here you go, it's up on the screen. Anyone tell me who that is? Elastigirl, good knowledge. Um, Elastigirl. Um, from uh, The Incredibles. So look, she is supremely, but not infinitely flexible. And, and I think in many ways, unintentionally one would assume, she encapsulates exactly what Paul was on about in this particular passage. <laughs> Honestly. Infinitely. No, sorry, supremely, but not infinitely flexible. Keep her in mind. Thank you very much. Okay, the structure of this section, I think, is wonderfully straightforward. In verse 19... Paul explains what he did. In verses 20 to 22, he then explains how he did that. And then in verse 23, he explains why he did it. And I thought we'd just look at each of those in turn. Here you go, three points. The first of which is this, from the passage. He restricted his freedom. He restricted his, his freedom. The freedom of which Paul speaks in verse 19 was his freedom from control by the church in Corinth. He'd made a prior decision not to be paid by them, but to instead support his own evangelistic ministry among them by just working a job. Now, the reason he did that was to make it clear to everyone that he was offering the gospel of free grace free of charge. And he wanted them to know there's nothing in it for him. There was everything in it for them, nothing in it for him. And so he didn't charge them even though he was their apostle and their minister. It meant that he didn't have to dance to their tune because they weren't paying. He was free. That's what he means. But although he was free, he decided to become a slave. And that is a remarkable choice of phrase. Now, he's not talking here about the abhorrent, abusive, dehumanizing practice of which this country was guilty back in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, but he is talking about slavery. He is talking about bonded employment. A slave is not their own master. Their life is about others. And so we read these words, and if we're reading them with our eyes open and our minds switched on, we want to say, you've done what? And his answer is, though I'm not a slave or enslaved to anyone, I've willingly become a slave to enslave myself to everyone. And part of us thinks, that's nuts. Why would you do that? And Paul's answer is a simple one, isn't it? To win as many as possible. I'll do what it takes to see the salvation of many. That phrase, to win, occurs five times in these five verses. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that Paul wants to win the Jews, 
win those under law, win those not under law, and win the weak, and win as many as possible. But then in verse 23, Paul changes the word he uses, and although he's still talking about the same thing, he uses the word save. So he enslaved himself to others so that he might win them, save them. By winning, he clearly means winning people to faith in Christ so that they might be saved. Now, I take it that we believe that anyone becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a win, isn't it? And we will take that any day of the week. But I think what Paul is pressing us towards here in this passage is for us to go for the big wins. And the big wins are to see the salvation of those not like us. The big wins are when those who are very different to us get to experience salvation like we have done from the inside. And that is what Paul's life was all about. He willingly placed himself under the obligation of others in order to win as many as possible of them to faith in Christ. His passion was to put himself at the disposal of as wide a range as other people as he could possibly manage in order to win them for Christ. Now that is extraordinary, isn't it? That is a wonderfully godly ambition. His life, which he freely gave away, so, and that, that's what Paul's life was about. So his life, which he freely gave away, as he enslaved himself to others, was about seeing people saved from hell, for heaven, for an eternity in God's presence, among God's people, enjoying God's new creation. Now let's be straight with ourselves for a moment. Our deep-seated unwillingness to put ourselves at the disposal of anyone else is the single biggest obstacle to us making any progress in cross-cultural ministry, isn't it? I mean, in the early part of the chapter, Paul has been talking about rights. And we might not quite put it like that, but our longing to be free from any obligation to anyone, is that obstruction that's blocking our path to progress. Now, if that blockage remains, our determination to stand on our rights, not to give ourselves away in service of others, we go nowhere, and neither does the gospel. You see, my problem is I'm primarily concerned about me. And all too often, I'm only ever really concerned about others. I'm only ever really concerned about you because you have an effect on me. Now, I'm willing to admit that I'm the only person in this tent who thinks like that. I just don't think I am. I think it's the same to assume that we're all in the same boat as this one, because the Bible is straight with us, isn't it, about the ongoing effect of sin in our hearts that puts us number one. That presence of rebellion against God makes us self-interested, self-concerned, self-obsessed, we're not about others, we're about me. But Paul enslaved himself to others. And so to conscience, consciously, to consistently decide to enslave ourselves to providing for someone else's needs, boy, that is a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's an even harder thing to put into practice. And yet, let's just stop for a moment and consider that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. In Philippians 2, we read of him who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, but instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave being made in human likeness. In order to save us, Jesus, though free, made himself a slave by taking on a human existence to win us, to win us for himself. And Paul was simply therefore owning and embodying the attitudes of his saviour and ours. And when you stop and think about it as a beneficiary of that, it is wonderful, isn't it? And let me ask you this question, don't you want to be like that? It doesn't matter which particular culture is ours. If the gospel is going to reach out beyond the confines of people like us, people like you, to people unlike you, we are going to need to become like the Lord Jesus Christ, who saw others unlike him as people to be served. Jesus looked at sinners, people very culturally different to himself, and moved towards them in love. We are surrounded by people in our city who need us to be their slaves, if they're ever going to be one for Christ. And so let me ask you, as I've got to ask myself, are you willing to put the needs of others before your own? And I'm not just talking about friends. I'm not just talking about family or colleagues, the nations gathered in the city. Are we prepared to put their needs before our own, to win them, to make that our abiding passion, to see them saved from hell for heaven for an eternity with God? But I guess it'd be good to know, what's that going to look like in practice? And in verses 20 to 22, Paul turns to four examples in which, secondly, he changed his behaviour. So secondly, he changed his behaviour. Now here, look, Paul lists four groups of people. And for each group, he simply says that he became like them in order to win them. Paul writes that he was as each of these groups. He was as each of these groups. Now these are four specific examples of his cultural flexibility in the first century. And then in verse 22, he summarises his approach with this general principle. I have become all things to all people, so that all, by all possible means I might save some. So, okay, we've got four specific examples of one general principle. Let's look very briefly at each of the specific examples. Firstly then, to the Jews, he became like a Jew. I think he's talking here about being willing to accommodate and accept the cultural customs and practices of his own people in order to gain a hearing with them. And so he submitted himself once again to the feasts and the rituals and the ceremonies of his past. Now he could have said, as a Christian, I don't need to do this anymore. This is not required of me as a follower of God. And he'd have been right. But he wouldn't have got very far, would he? I take it we will never reach the Hindu community in West London or the Bangladeshi community in the East without this kind of cultural flex. Secondly, to those under the law, he became like one under the law. It may be that he's just taking the first principle a stage further, but I think he's talking here about the specific requirements of the Jewish religious laws. And Paul was absolutely clear that abiding by the law, the Old Testament law, was not something that was required of him any longer. His acceptance before God depended not on his own 
record of obedience to the law, his acceptance before God depended on Jesus Christ's obedience to the law. And that was brilliant. And therefore he was saved. And yet, what does he do? He voluntarily accepts those kind of constraining limitations of the Old Testament law once again in order to make inroads with the gospel. I take it will never reach the Jewish community in North London without someone developing this careful religious sensitivity. Thirdly, to those not under the law, he became like one not under the law. And he's talking here about the Gentiles. Remember, in the, uh, the, the world was um, divided into Jews and Gentiles. Um, so it's, it's, we're talking about the non-Jewish people. Now, they had the reputation of being lawless because they didn't have the Old Testament law which God gave to Israel. And it's not hard to, to draw that conclusion that these are a lawless people if you just read your way through the book of Corinthians. Now, among those, therefore, who ignored Jewish traditions, who ignored Jewish law, Paul does the same. But he never ignored the law of Christ, because as a Christian, he could never bring himself to disobey the law as the word of God. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But that clearly placed limits on the degree of behavioral accommodation that he could in good conscience make. So without breaking God's law, without breaking, sorry, breaking, disobeying God's word, he was happy to mix with the immoral, lawless crowds of Corinth in order to win them. Now, of course, he doesn't approve of everything that they did. How could he? They operated with a different set of standards, and he knew that. But here's the thing. Their lawless behavior was not the reason to keep them at arm's length and to remain hidden in a, a ghettoized Christian comfortable culture. Maintaining his own obedience to God's requirements, he threw himself into the mix. I became a Christian when I was um, 19. I was playing a lot of rugby in those days. I loved rugby. I loved being around rugby clubs. You would know, I imagine, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in rugby clubs that the Bible would want to say, hmm, really? You shouldn't know. What do I do? I, I love the guys I played rugby with. I wanted to be with them. There's got to be a way, as Paul here, of being... Reaching the lawless by becoming lawless without being disobedient. I'm not sure I got it right. But we want to retain that kind of accommodation, don't we? I think that's what he's talking about here. Fourthly, to the weak he became weak. In the light of the immediate context of chapter 8, the weak here are probably those with tender consciences on moral issues. I'm not going to say much more about that. We picked it up, I think, in the first part of chapter 9. So in the first century, there was some debate about what freedom Christians had to eat meat that had been offered to idols, or whether they should continue going and mixing with the temple feasts. But here's the point. The point is that Paul would rather restrict his freedom as a slave than cause them unnecessary uh, offence and make it difficult for them to take him seriously, to hear, and to believe the gospel. Now, those are the four uh, sort of places in which Paul applied that general principle. Let me just say one or two things. About that, actually, it's four. But uh, here you go. Paul um, clearly then listed different cultures. Each culture had its distinctive way of doing things that were shaped by their underlying convictions, and that I think is what cultures are. They are way the way that we do things around here. Um, the key thing is who is we. Uh, you know, it's, it, this is the way we do things around. Uh, sorry, just so I'm clear, who is we? See, we could be a nation. And you can have those national stereotypes. Uh, we do celebration this way. We do mourning this way. Uh, we could be a class. 
and say amongst our class, if we identify that, this is how we do things. We could be a family, could be a family like ours, and say, this is how we do Christmas, and no one gets to open their presents until the Queen has spoken and we all stand for the national anthem. That's just the way any normal family does Christmas. <laughs> Obviously, we could be an individual. I have my ways of doing things. Um, it took marriage to realise there is another perspective, and I've spent my life making compromises. <laughs> the truth is, I have my own culture. Everyone has their culture, but at different levels. I guess the, it reminds us that we just need to be careful, doesn't it, about generalisations and stereotypes. Not every Scotsman is tight with their money, I'm told. <laughs> Not every Englishman has a stiff upper lip. But there is something you sometimes there's, there's something useful occasionally in generalisation, because it tends to be generally true. But I guess it ought to make us being wary of being superficial about cultural categorisations. Let's not be lazy. It is, I think, by taking our time and immersing ourselves in a culture and trying to understand that culture, we'll begin to work out not only what do people do, perhaps more importantly, why do people do it. I take it, for example, it might be easy to look at the situation with Mike Reith in Beckentree and say, he's got it all wrong. He's on a working class estate in Dagenham. He knocks on doors in a barber jacket and wears a flat cap. But Mike's worked out that you can reach the cultures there looking like you've just come from a long walk and a country pub. Because what you wear on that estate isn't a massive cultural obstacle. But that's by immersing yourselves in that culture and asking the key questions and working out what really matters and why. Secondly, Paul didn't belong to any of the four cultures. He belonged to a completely different culture. So he had to shift every time he went into those cultures. So he had one himself from which he had to leave to reach the others. He was part of his own culture, shaped no doubt by his Christian convictions. He had habitual, normal, typical ways of doing things. But he left them for the sake of the salvation of others. Because their salvation matters so much more to him than the preservation of his own culture. And so he's prepared to leave it. For as long as I've known John Lumgare, which is you know, probably about 15 years now, he has had this massive burning concern for the Somali people in London. Now, that's not John's culture. He's a middle-class creative, but he leaves his world for theirs, to win them, that they might know salvation from the inside like he does. Thirdly, with each cultural group, what does Paul do? He moves towards them. He modified or accommodated his behaviour to theirs. He doesn't, want to stick out like a sore he doesn't want to stick out like a sore thumb. He doesn't want to put any unnecessary, avoidable obstacles in the way to make it difficult for those people from other cultures to hear the gospel. He doesn't want to be problematic. And so look, rather obviously, there is no one-size-fits-all method to evangelism. There's no one way of doing it in our different cultures. We cannot expect to reach the diversity of London's population employing identical methods. Christianity Explored might work really well in some contexts and absolutely nosedive in others. And that's okay. Just We have to find another way. So the team at St John's Chelsea reaching the world's end estate, and the team at St Andrew's Chelsea, reaching those who spend their weekends on their own country estates, <laughs> share the same gospel. But it cannot be that Paul and Andy use the same methodology to reach those people. 
that what we do and how we do it, rather, is going to be shaped by who we're trying to reach. Fourthly on this, Paul has limits to his accommodation. I think, this is the way I think about it, there are two opposing errors, both of which, of course, we need to avoid. One is a kind of cultural isolationism, shut off from the world. We're so concerned about the preservation of our Christian culture that we're of absolutely no use to the rest of the world. But that means we've got no meaningful connection. Now, it ought to be that our love for people, our concern for people, our concern for God's glory means we're not going to stay here being sort of culturally isolated. But I guess there is another opposing danger, and that is kind of cultural assimilation. We are absolutely and utterly indistinguishable from the world around us, both in terms of what we believe and how we behave. Now, those are two opposing things, but the drift of the passage, isn't it, is out of isolationism towards assimilation. That is the drift of the passage, but we've got to stop at some point. See, Christians who want to cross cultures to win people for Christ have got to occupy this middle ground and move, spurning isolationism and moving towards assimilation because there are limits. And what are those limits? Well, Paul here simply is talking about adapting his behaviour. He is not, for a single moment, talking about adapting the gospel. There is one unchangeable gospel for the entire world because there's one saviour for the world who died on one cross, who rose to life from the dead and will return to judge the entirety of the world. There's one gospel, there's one way to be saved. Paul is absolutely unmistakably clear. I mean, most most of the New Testament is written because people got that wrong. That message is inflexible, but the manner and the means by which we deliver it is going to be shaped by the context. So door knocking will be brilliant in one context, might not go down brilliantly in another. There are also, of course, limits to his accommodation. There were things that he wouldn't do. I guess I've touched on these. So if something is forbidden by the word of God, the law of Christ, we don't do it. Even if we've got a passion for those people. So Neil Richardson and Arnie Pelosi on the Longheath estate are really wary about being drawn into unhelpful chatter because we can't become like gossips to win those who spend their lives bad-mouthing others. And Neil and Arnie know that. So they'll go, they'll move towards, but they'll stop short. We don't want to become drunkards to win those for whom alcohol is their escape. So I guess if you're ministering in places like Putney, Leafy Muswell Hill, or the commuting heaven of Earlsfield, guys like Ben, Phil and Andy are going to have to be really careful, aren't they? Because they'll want to spend their time doing the Saturday night dinner party thing, where everyone pitches up not only with flowers and chocolates, but with a glass of white, a glass of red and some champers. And they're there because they they've bought themselves a babysitter and they'll go into the long hours of the day. But those boys, you know, they're going to stop short of being drunk. So they'll need to keep an eye on that. And we'll need to keep an eye on their recycling boxes. (laughs) Look, I don't think it's always easy to work out what what to do when. And I can't give you, I think, simple, superficial answers from the the stage. There is so much more to be said on this. But I I hope we've got the broad point clear. It is about being socially flexible. Elastigirl. Paul helpfully, I think, summarises his approach in verse 22. He says this, this is the general principle. I have become all things to all people so that all possi- by all possible means I might save some. Just stop there for a moment. Can you appreciate there the lengths that he went to? All, 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 some. All things to all people 
so that by all possible means I might save some. The salvation of some matters so much to him that he did all he could to all of them as often as he could to save them. It's brilliant, isn't it? Thirdly and finally, Paul owned his ambition. He owned his ambition. Verse 23. This is the conclusion. He explains why he put himself through this enslaving experience of accommodating to different cultures. I mean, I like my culture, particularly my individual culture. Anytime I'm required to move out of that through interaction with others, whether it's my family, my wider family, my colleagues, my job, people, that's to some degree discomforting. So the further a culture is from me, it just gets uncomfortable. It's chafing. I don't like it. But why would you do it? Verse 23. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul does it all for the sake of the gospel. He is way more concerned by the progress of the gospel than he was by any other progress. And I take it that's a challenge for us. See, the progress that I'm most concerned about is usually my own or that of my family. We find it hard not to be concerned with how the kids are progressing in their school or their sports or how, their career, or how my own career is progressing at work or how relationships are progressing in my social life. But for Paul, whether the gospel was going forward, whether it was making inroads into the lives of those around him, that's the thing that concerned him most. And that's a massive challenge, isn't it? But he says, I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. There was something in it for him. The phrase actually is literally, in order that I might become a fellow sharer in it. He's talking about the inexpressible joy. That unbelievable blessing of being a part of the gospel's forward progress. It is absolutely brilliant to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And Paul wanted that experience for himself. He wanted in to what God was doing. And he wants that experience for every single one of us. Around the corner from our house, uh, there's a William Hill uh, bookmaker's. It's full of uh, blokes who've put their hopes in a particular horse, lucky lady in the 415 at Kempton or wherever. Um, now, their eyes, for the duration of that race, are glued to the screen because their hopes stand or fall by the performance of lucky lady. What that horse does matters most to them. They're not distracted. They are focused. Why? Because they've got skin in the game. Sitting in this tent last night, hearing about the gospel's progress in the world. Didn't you feel like you got some skin in the game? And when we stop and think about it for a moment, when we're honest, perhaps in moments like this where we come away for a weekend, the progress of the gospel is what matters most to us, isn't it? It matters most in our own lives, in that of those that are dear to us. And Paul's saying, go for the big wins. Be concerned about the progress in the gospel in those who are very different to you. We want to win the people of our neighbourhood to Christ, don't we? We'd love to see perhaps our neighbour next door, the Pakistani family next door, uh, the Polish family down the end of the street, the Lithuanian guy who's just moved in with some mates. We'd love to see them come to know Christ for themselves, wouldn't we? 
be amazing. Let me conclude. I would love to give every single one of you a blueprint for what you have to do in your own particular context. I'd love to be able to talk to every church leader about what they need to do in their own culture or in their own situation to win each and every culture in their midst. But the truth is, I don't know. Um, Not beyond the basics. But that's the task of every single one of us, isn't it? And boy, are we going to have some fun trying to figure that one out. Immersing ourselves into a country, asking the questions, why do they do that? What what do they do and why? And how might we not be an obstacle? Because we don't want to be a castle. Church cannot be a castle. You know, we were in Edinburgh the other day, Rostin and I, and um, uh, the, the castle up there, it's got a drawbridge. It's got a portcullis. It's got ramparts and it's got other things that I've forgotten what they're called. But the whole point is, you don't get in. You know, because we draw it all up. You stay out, arm's length, no. And we don't want to be like that, either in our lives or in our church life. Everything's got to be down that says, come on. There's nothing standing in the way for you to come in, come close and hear from me the most life-changing news in the world about Jesus Christ who died that you might know God as your father. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? So I'd love to give you a blueprint, but I can't. But I guess if we're starting to ask the question, that is the start that we need. But as we've looked at, this passage gives us three broad principles that are going to feed into that discussion. Because to win others for the Lord Jesus Christ, for them to experience salvation, we're going to need to, one, restrict our freedom and enslave ourselves to everyone around us. After all, that is what the Lord Jesus Christ did that we might be saved. Secondly, we're going to change our behaviour and move towards people who are unlike us. After all, our great passion is not the preservation of our own culture, is it? It is the salvation of sinners. Thirdly, we're going to own our own ambition and make the progress of the gospel the chief concern amongst all those competing concerns of our life. After all, in the light of eternity, and given what we heard last night, and what we've heard over this weekend, and where we know the future is going, that's what matters most to us, isn't it? Let me pray now that in the years to come, the gathering here looks very different from how it is now, because God has brought the nations to himself through what we've begun to do in our local context. Let me pray for us. Our loving Heavenly Father, please help us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to enslave ourselves for the sake of the salvation of others, to change our behaviour and move into an uncomfortable place where some of what we need to do chafes a bit for the sake of the salvation of others, and to have as our chief ambition the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through the salvation of people very different to us. We ask this for Jesus' sake, for his glory. Amen. Tomorrow, Richard Cokin on Revelation 7. For more on Commission's commitment to cross-cultural mission in London and to the world, visit us at commission.org slash mission.